draw your attention back to Ephesians 4 this morning. And we'll probably read the same verse as we read last Sunday to start. Let's, let's actually start in verse 1 and go through verse 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Read from God's holy word this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, thankful to, to be gathered together uh, as a local body here this morning to worship you, to look to your word, Lord, and we pray that the Spirit would visit us this morning and show us wondrous things from out of your law. Lord, we long to see what, what you would have us to see here this morning through your word. Lord, just open our eyes and open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, may our worship be acceptable to you this morning. And may we glorify you in all that we do. It's in the name of our Savior Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I would direct your thoughts just briefly this morning as we start to your dad, uh, to your earthly father. I would like like you to think of some of the things that he meant to you, especially as a child. Uh, Think about your dad. What was it that you felt in his presence? What was it that you went to your dad with? Were there times when you were fearful? Was he protection for you? Those times when you were laying in bed and heard a strange sound that scared you? Who did you cry out to? Whose room did you go into? I remember times when we would be out in public and the girls would be small, that something would scare them, and they would run. They'd be out ahead, and they would run backwards and grab a hold of my legs really tightly and get behind me, kind of peering out from the side, but under the protection. They felt that there was protection between them and that which scared them when they were behind their dad. What about times when you were joyful? Uh, when something good happens and your heart is, is soaring, is your dad not one of those who would be first to, you'd have first contact, maybe with a phone call or go over and share these things with your dad? I'm certain that there's some of you here this morning whose earthly fathers have long since passed away. And I doubt that, that desire is not still present within you. This compulsion to speak to your dad about those things that have happened in your life and brought joy to you and your family. 
What about difficulties? When something crossed your path in life that brings sorrow or trials? What about when you lack confidence? When you have a need to get something done, but you lack the confidence to see it through? I remember Dad when he was building a staircase. Having his dad come to help him. To kind of look over his shoulder and to be a source of confidence in doing something that dad did not do much of. I still do this. Still call dad when I'm not confident about something. Sometimes just knowing your dad is there to look over your shoulder and advise is a great source of help and comfort. We were talking about this yesterday. I asked Abby and Grace, and one of the things that Grace said about her dad was wisdom and sound judgment. Is, there, is an earthly father not something that you can go to with these things and for these things? You don't know how to face some of the things in your life or how to get through, and your earthly father comes to bring counsel from a vast, vast amount of experience and insight. God has blessed so many of us with good fathers, dads who have played that part, and for some of us are still filling a need we have in our lives. There's a defect, though, is there not? Our earthly fathers are imperfect. By the very nature of their being, they are flawed. I find in my life as a dad that I have failed miserably oftentimes in the role that God has given me to perform as a dad to my children. And I think if we're honest, we could say that that is the case in every single one of our earthly fathers. Every dad has been plagued with the fact that we have a sinful nature and that all sinful nature brings to the table uh, everything that it brings, including up to and including death. Every dad will eventually pass away and the child will be left with only the memories and those things that may have been passed down from their dad. This is one of the great difficulties in life. I've seen this in my own parents' lives where they've lost their dads. Some of the hardest times in their lives. But the Christian has a father who is eternal. A father who is not subject to change and decay. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't have any memory loss. One of my grandfathers suffered from Alzheimer's. That was difficult. I'm sure it was much more difficult to my dad than it even was to me. But the Christian has an eternal heavenly father who has no memory loss. He's all wise, all powerful, he's unerring, and he always will be. This father, this heavenly father, is the subject of verse 6 of our text here in Ephesians 4 that we will be looking at this morning. 
Here in Ephesians 4, all together, we have been looking at this unity that exists in the body of Christ, in, in God's people, in his church. We have stated that this unity already exists when one is made a member of the body. We stated that this is a sevenfold unity that already exists. It is based on these seven things that the Apostle Paul lays out for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first three things mentioned in verse 4 are one body, one spirit, one hope. These things are pertaining to the person and the work of God the Holy Spirit. The second things mentioned in verse 5 are one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those are the things we looked at last week pertaining to the person and the work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we will move on to verse 6 and that thing that is mentioned in verse 6 which is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I would spend a little time this morning with what we have but briefly touched on in the, pre- in the previous two messages, that this, this unity is a Trinitarian unity. It is a unity in, of, and through the working of God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is often the case with Paul that he builds, and we've talked about this a little bit, builds one thing upon another as he and and he builds up to the apex, to the top. He keeps rising his arguments and his statement until they reach their climax. And it is here that we find ourselves this morning, where Paul in verse four dealt with God the Holy Spirit, verse five, God the Son, and now in verse six, God the Father. He has really been doing this all along, has he not? But what we notice here in this particular series of verses, 4, 5, and 6, is that Paul lays this out exactly opposite of the way that we normally speak of the Trinity. We normally say, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He does that and introduces the Trinity in this particular passage of Scripture in exactly the opposite way. Why is it different in these three verses? James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, I think it is because the apostle is arguing from the effect to the cause. He said in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity through the spirit in the spirit through the bond of peace. This refers to the visible unity the Holy Spirit has given to the church. So he starts with the one body, which is visible, and with the Holy Spirit himself. But then we ask, where did this effect come from? How did the church get to be the church? The answer is through the work of Christ. The church is the company of those who follow Christ. Thus Paul moves from a discussion of what the Holy Spirit does to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And if at that point we say, yes, but why did the Lord Jesus Christ do that? The answer is that it all flows from the one God who is over all and through all and in all. And that's the case, isn't it? The work of the Spirit is to lead us to truth and to Christ. 
And then what is it that Christ does through all of his work? Through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he leads us to and reconciles us to the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2.13. Since you're there, just skip back a page if it's a page for you. Ephesians 2.13 but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what is it being brought near to? God the Father. Into His presence. Look at Ephesians 2.16. And might reconcile us both, that's Jew and Gentile, remember, both to who? To God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Look at verse 18. For through Him, that's through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So Paul is just repeating a truth here from what he has already stated, but he's building it in the opposite direction. Not from the perspective of God, which is how he begins in chapter 1, where God is doing something before the foundation of the world. But here, Paul is looking at it more from our perspective. The Spirit worked and brought us to Christ and then points us, who then, Christ who then, points us to and reconciles us to the Father, showing us that all of us who are members of the one body have all this in common. It is a unity that we all share. It is not... This is the purpose of salvation, is it not? For a people to be united together, reconciled together all to God. What happened in the garden? Think about this. What happened in the garden during the fall? Man sinned and immediately died, becoming what? Alienated to God. Alienated to God. All of which led to we as mankind not only being alienated from God, but also being in a state of disunity with each other. It wasn't the very next generation where Cain slew his brother Abel. Disunity. 
So then salvation is the process or the work of God, this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to bring us back to God, to redeem us and to reconcile us to God and through Him to each other. This is the unity that Paul is telling us about here in Ephesians 4. Every child of God, every redeemed sinner, every member of the one body is brought through the one Spirit by the one Lord to the one God and Father of us all. Every single one. I wish that there was a way to adequately illustrate just what it means, this this idea of the Trinity. The triune God, but every single analogy, and I've looked and looked and looked and looked, every single analogy, every single illustration falls short at some point. There is nothing like it. Nothing. Nothing exists in the way in which the Trinity exists. Yet Scripture declares it, declares it to be so, And we see evidence of this, but with our finite minds, we just cannot grasp what this trinity actually is. One God in three persons. I want to to belabor something here just for a moment this morning that I think is so crucial for us to lay hold of in our hearts and our minds this truth concerning the work of salvation, the work of salvation accomplished by this trinity that brings unity to us, but something that is so crucial to us in our spiritual battle. Paul directs these Christians in Ephesus and to us to see what they are as a result of this salvation and through who this salvation has come. He sets before them this sevenfold unity that we've been looking at these last three weeks, starting with the one Spirit, building through the work of the one Lord, up to the very climax or the apex of the one God and Father of all. He has spent three chapters, chapters one through three in Ephesians, dealing with these great doctrines of salvation. These great truths And he's now laying before us the results, the effects of this salvation. And one of the major effects of this salvation is unity. And he sets this before us as objective truth. It's truth. It's objective truth. Grounded in the foundational truth of the Trinity... He says, this unity is a matter of fact. This is something you already have. By and through this holy trinity, this God which exists in three persons. And in and through the work of these three persons, you are united in a common salvation. Not common as in ordinary, but common as in it is shared between all of you who are of the redeemed of the Lord. You have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Each person of the Trinity intimately agreeing and working to accomplish 
that which they, the Godhead, has purposed. This is an objective fact, Paul declares. He doesn't lead us to, he doesn't lead us and these Ephesians to that which they feel. And this is so important for us. It's not just what we feel. Salvation is experiential. The Puritans used to call it experimental. And they would talk about experimental or experiential theology. We experience this, but it is not just about how we feel. But that which is true, and to what is true and to what unites us, even when our feelings may come and go and ebb and flow. When struggles and when disputes arise and feelings are all riled up or, or we've got hurt feelings or we're perplexed about things, these things which Paul is declaring to us are still true. You are one, you are of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Our enemy would have us feel at times otherwise. He would lay doubts at our doors that we would have a split in unity, and he would attempt to and try in his various ways, in his crafty, subtle ways, to lead us into disharmony, to disunity. But Paul says, no, don't, don't buy this. You already have, and you should be eager to maintain what you already have. Unity exists and is maintained by a knowledge and comprehension of these great truths. That is why truth, and specifically these truths about salvation by grace through faith, that it's of the Lord, the gospel must be preached. This grand scheme of redemption that we read about in Ephesians 1, accomplished in and through the perfect unity of the Trinity is the grounds for unity as believers. We cannot achieve unity through some enterprise or, or through us having some campaign. Unity must be achieved by the preaching of the good news, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul says here in our text that we have one God. There is one God, not many. There's just one. And just as there is one God, we may also say that God is one, which is what we have been dealing with regarding the Trinity. This does not contradict that there is one God and that God is one. The Trinity is one God in three persons, one in essence, one in being, one in purpose, one will, existing in three persons. Like we said before, we cannot understand this fully. But it is something that is taught in Scripture and throughout the whole of Scripture and must be believed. This one God is the creator of all things, and he certainly is the one and only God. This world worships many gods, and we see an example of that in Acts 17.23 when Paul is speaking to the men in Athens, and he says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. 
I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. We see that there are many false gods that are worshipped. Most we see today, there's false gods everywhere. We don't see altars set up to them, but they're there nonetheless. Our altars just look a little bit different. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." There is no doubt that there is only one God. Anywhere, nowhere else is there a God except Jehovah. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not speaking of this one God and Father as in terms of the whole world without distinction. Elsewhere in Scripture, we deal with that. We deal with the fact that God is the one and only God uh, of all things. Sovereign over all things and exercising his power over all things. This is most certainly true. But here, this is defined by and through the context of what Paul is telling us. Paul is, is speaking in reference to the unity that exists in the church. In the one body. And the climax, climax of this list of seven is this one God and Father of all to the church. This is not the way in which all persons without exception are united. This is in regards to the fact that all the redeemed of the Lord have one God and Father, because this is a shared truth, a fact that the church is under the authority, the power, and the leading of one God and Father. He is the one God and Father of us, the church. He is God of all, but He is Father to those whom He has adopted through Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For those who God the Father foreknew, God the Father, the one God and Father, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, the one Lord that he, the one Lord, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our one God and Father did this for his church, for his people. He is not the father of those that are outside of Christ. In John eight forty four, Christ was speaking to a group of Pharisees. 
And he said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. The one God and father that Paul is talking about here is not their God and father. They were not of the body. They were Jews, but they were outside the family of God. But this is not the case for those who have been redeemed. Christians have this one God and Father. They have access to this Father. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. How transforming should this be to us? To each and every one of us who have been recipients of this great salvation. That God is our Father. Would this truth not enliven us to pray that God is our Father, to beseech our Father as we would in some small fashion go to our earthly fathers when we have need of something, when we have fears that assail us, when we have need of confidence and need of wisdom, when we need help. Speaking of earthly fathers, Matthew 7, verse 11, if you then who are evil, speaking of earthly fathers, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, the one God and father, who is in heaven, give good, good things to those who ask him? Do we live this way? Do we live with this reality in mind? Do we see what we have? We have an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, unerring, unchanging Father. If you are a Christian, you have been adopted by Him. Isn't that what Paul told us earlier in Ephesians 1.5? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You have this one God as your father. This one God who is able, look at Ephesians 3.20, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Whose power? the one God and Father's power. Are you on your knees before Him? Are you daily, hourly, minute by minute under the realization that this is your Father who you have access and confidence and boldness to enter into His presence through Jesus Christ? That is a mind-blowing reality. Paul goes on to tell us that this one God and Father is over all. God is the creator and sovereign over all things. But again, in this context, Paul is speaking of those things as they relate to the church. 
So we must look at how this God and Father is over all things to the church. In this regard, the church is His great design. Isn't this what we see in the opening lines of this epistle to the Ephesians? Look at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at verse 4 through 5. And, and I know that these he's and him's are difficult. That's one of the reasons I gave out those papers when we first started Ephesians, because there's a lot of him's. There's a lot of he's. And we have to know who of the Trinity those are talking about, because it pertains to exactly what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 4. Verse 4 and 5, even as He, that is our one God and Father, chose us in Him, that is our one Lord, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, that is our one Lord and Father, or one God and Father, excuse me. In love, He, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His, that is, God the Father's will. <clears throat> is not this a great blessing to know and understand that we have been blessed with Him from eternity? His plan and purpose was to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? that we have been chosen by this one God and Father and placed in Jesus Christ, this one Lord, who has chosen to adopt us, that we might be His sons and that He would be our Father. This is the work of the Father. That work which is ascribed to Him by the pen of the Apostle Paul through inspiration of the one Spirit. This is the plan and purpose of God, the will of God to do this for all those who, who He chose. This is what Ephesians 1, through, 1 verse 9 relates to us. Making known to us the mystery of His, that's God the Father's will, according to His, God the Father's purpose, which He, God the Father, set forth in Christ. It is the will and the, the work of the Father to unite all of us, the redeemed of the Lord, and to place us into the body of Christ, the one body, for His glory. He goes on to reveal that to us in Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ, in, in our one Lord, things in heaven and things on earth. We sing a hymn, Lost in Wonder, Love, and Praise. When I think about these things and what the triune God has done on our behalf, I get lost in wonder, love, and praise. 
What a depth. What, what a magnitude of blessing we have. And we have that Paul has revealed to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what our God has done for us. And Paul goes on. He is also through all. He, this, this one God and Father of all, is through all. He is powerfully working through all that he is over concerning the church to accomplish all that he has purposed. Do you recall in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20? These are all things that Paul is bringing back to our attention. In Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked... Let's start over. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his, that's this one God and Father's, power towards us who believe according to the working of his, God, the God and Father's great might that he worked in Christ when he, the Father, raised him, that's Christ, from the dead and seated him, Christ, at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. This is an example of God working his purpose through all. He has by his power of, of creation, his resurrection power, been working through and, and in every individual whom he chose before the foundation of the world and predestined to adoption he is working to bring them to salvation. Not to just merely make salvation a possibility, but to actually accomplish salvation on their behalf because they cannot do it of themselves. He is working. This one God and Father is working through all. This is what Paul is getting at when he tells us in Ephesians 2, that we were dead, but God made us alive. Look at Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God did this. Death to life to accomplish His purpose. One God and Father working through all. This is, what, this is what is told to us in the prophecy of Ezekiel. 36. His people were far from Him. And out of concern for His, God the Father's, holy name, He decided to do something. He said He's going to cleanse them. He's going to remove that old dead heart. He's going to rip it out and he's going to put a living heart of flesh into them and he's going to put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. What does that look like? It looks like what he says in the very next chapter. 
It looks like a valley full of dry, dead, scattered, very dry bones. And God, this one God and Father, working through all, He unites these old, dead, very dry bones and puts flesh on them, brings them together, and breathes life into them. He unites them. And what does He tell us there in Ezekiel 37? They live and they stand together, together, united, on their feet, an exceedingly great army. He is through all. Paul doesn't even just leave it at that. He goes on to tell us that this one God and Father is in all. Our God and Father doesn't stop when He brings us to life. He has more purpose than even just that. He continues to work in all and display His power even to raise us up to the heavenly places. It's what we read in Ephesians, isn't it? Building us up together that we as a united body of believers might be made into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. Isn't this what we, what we read? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He didn't just make them alive and leave it at that. He's doing something more. He's making them fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. If you remember back to when we studied the, the seven letters in Revelation, in the letter of the Church of Philadelphia, there in uh, Revelation 3, we read in verses 12 through 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is going to make those who he brings all the way through. How do we conquer? We conquer because Christ conquered and we're in Him. We are more than conquerors, right? We conquer and what is He going to do? He's going to make us into a pillar in His temple. That is where God dwells. That's a picture of God dwelling in the midst of His people. The same thing that Paul is telling us here at the end of Ephesians 2. And in John 14, verse 23, Jesus is speaking here. 
Jesus speaking before the crucifixion and before His resurrection and ascension, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, we will come to him and make our home with him. He is in all. Do we begin to see what it means to have this one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all? Do you see that this is something that we as believers all share and have in common, that we are united in this as we are sharing in each and every one of these seven things that Paul has been dealing with and showing to us. Is this one God your Father? Is He your Father? This is a crucial question. This is a question of utmost importance. Are you His? Do you have access to this Father? Has He worked over you to give you His great gifts of grace? Has He worked through you? Has He regenerated you, bringing you to life from death? Are you His new creation? Is He even now working in you, His workmanship as a display piece for His glory and His grace? Does this unity enter your mind? Does it affect you in your life? If you have no experience in this unity, if you have no knowledge of this unity, then I fear that you have no share as of yet in this unity. There is something that unites us. And Paul just got done dealing with these seven things that unite all of the members of the body of Christ. It unites us, but it separates others. We are a peculiar people. We are called out of the world to be his own possession. Let me share something with you that might have some significance to what we've been dealing with the last few weeks. And in particular, this unity among believers, which is not shared by those outside of the body. How one may have confidence, one might live with confidence and boldness when there is a share in this one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and ultimately in one God and Father. And how these things may be viewed from one outside the body and even to be used by this one God and Father through the one Lord, Jesus Christ, by the one Spirit to be the means of drawing that one outside of these things into his body. Thomas Alexander 
was a man who lived back in the middle part of the 19th century. He wrote an article uh, about his first visit since his younger adolescent days to St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland. He wrote an article for the Sabbath School magazine in 1860. Uh, It was a magazine out of Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, He wrote concerning his own conversion and what took place. He came back to Dundee after being gone for, I I don't know how long. He called it Dundee his native village. Uh, He found that when he arrived, that a great change had passed in the city all around. And he made it a point to say literally all around because the effects of the revival that had taken place there in Dundee had a profound impact on the city. There was a unity among these believers. And it was felt by him when he walked back into the city and saw the change that had taken place among the people of that city. William Burns had been occupying the pulpit while Robert Murray McShane was away on a missionary journey to Palestine. McShane had just returned and Thomas Alexander and McShane would soon become really good friends. Soon, they would have something in common. Well, when Mr. Alexander returned to the city, he, sat, he, he said he found nothing but wonders everywhere. And it wasn't to do with the buildings. It wasn't to do with the streets. It was something different in the people. He stated that the wave of spiritual life had passed over the village, leaving vitality and greenness all around. That morning of his first visit to hear McShane preach, Alexander stated a group of 20 to 30 left the area around his father's house, and it was six miles away. Doesn't seem like much to us today. But in the mid-1800s, six miles was a pretty long journey, especially when it was the time of year it was here. He had heard from others about the preaching of McShane, and so he went along. Some of you will remember I I told part of this man's testimony uh, earlier. It's been probably several months ago now. The story of the fierce, drunken, brutal savage. You all remember that? The one described as the sort that actually kicks and bites in their explosions of, of fury. Well, this Thomas Alexander, this same day that I'm going to recount this other experience. This same day, he gets to the church and he sees this man who he feared because of the way he was treated as a youth by this individual. He once lived in absolute terror of this man. But he found that something in the man was changed. Alexander said of that man, grace had changed the face of that man. The one God had worked. Through the one Lord by the one Spirit in that man's life. Same day. I'll quote from what Mr. Alexander said now. I remember the aspect of that day, snowy day, my wet, smoking clothes, my first sitting down in the middle of a congregation, three parts gathered, my first looks around me, the unpleasant sensations gathering strength gradually. 
that I had never been in such a place before. A feeling like that of Jacob, how dreadful is this place? This is the house of God, and I am a stranger in it. This is the gate of heaven, and I am on the outside of it. There was unity among the church, and this man immediately felt that there was something different. And he was outside of it. He goes on, How well, too, I remember the solemn, staid looks of the people, the bustle to get in, and yet all quiet and decorous, the gradual filling up of every nook, every corner, and the passage, the children on the pulpit stairs, and clustering like bees all around the pulpit. And then I remember the minister working his way through all that dense crowd till he got fairly into the pulpit at last and his giving out the psalm and a few terse, beautiful remarks he made upon it in a voice at first far from taking. And oh, how vividly I seem to be able to call up the singing of that first psalm. Now listen. With the grave, sweet melody, so many living souls. The great swelling voice of the hearts, not singular, but plural. The great swelling of the hearts, united praise, blending into one sweet song. This is unity among believers on display. It well prepared me for the prayer that followed. That was the first time I ever heard prayer. Never, never before did I understand what prayer meant. Now I understood it. He never told us, speaking of McShane, he never told us what prayer was. He never needed. Behold, he prayeth, that is prayer. Few that ever heard, ever forgot his first two words. Holy Father. Was it oratory? No. Was it very eloquent? No. Was it very beautiful? No. What then was it? Nothing whatsoever but simply the truth. He was a man so completely imbued with truth that it came out when he spoke. This is a great truth that God is, that God is holy. How many thousand different standards you may attach to that word holy. The man of whom I speak seemed to have got up to the full height of it and to have entered into the secret places of the holiness of God. Courage. Boldness. Access. And then, Holy Father. That word Father, what a world of meaning is in it. God is that man's Father. You can see and feel by the way he utters the word that that man is a son of God. And I, what am I? What a beautiful face it was as it shone again in the certainty of peace 
with God. How reverently, how lovingly he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Holy Father. This man, as a result of this, was drawn by Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and became a minister of the gospel. But do you see the unity that existed within that church, within that body, that local body of the one body? And how this man knew he was on the outside. There was something that he did not have. There is a unity that exists. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is through all, in all. He's doing this. He's over all. He's he's making it by His power a reality for those of us who He chose before the foundation of the world. He's doing it all. All of it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that we are united. Lord, we are thankful that we are united together. Lord, but we know that the reality is that we would not be united together if we were not united to you. We thank you for your working. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for salvation. Thank you for the work of the Son and the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would have opportunities to to display your glory and your grace to those around us that others might be drawn. Drawn to look to the Savior. Lord, bless this word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.